So now we're going to shift into our scripture reading today. Please bear with me. It's a little bit longer today, but it's a good one. So this is Luke 2, uh, verse 1 through 14, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, guys. You guys doing all right? Every year, we're, we just celebrated five years. Every year, as part of our life of our, our church calendar, we celebrate the Advent season. And it's been a wonderful um, celebration tradition for us. And I think a lot of actually churches have returned to the tradition of Advent, which is actually beautiful. And really, one of the main reasons why we celebrate Advent, yes, we love liturgy, we love tradition, but it's really an opportunity for us to slow down. We've got a lot going on. I know it because I'll invite you guys to something. You guys like, see you in 2023. <laughs> People's calendars are being filled up. We have um, parties to attend, events to plan, gifts, gifts to buy. And, and Advent, celebrating Advent allows us to really breathe. Everyone breathe for a second. <sighs> no traffic today. Not, not, not too bad on the road here. Again, every year around this time, uh, as we're cl inching closer to the end of 22 and 22 and 23, approaching 23, uh, things get busy. It's so easy to make this season of Advent about everything other than Jesus. Have you noticed? You go to cafe, carols. Have you noticed over probably last 10 years, carols have become less about Jesus and more about something else? Have you noticed? Like Starbucks, carols are not about Jesus, it's about something else. Um, and and uh, to borrow the words of a, a, a sister named Fleming Ruddage, this is what she says about Advent and, and, and the joy of celebrating Advent. And I'll quote from uh, her, her work. She wrote a book titled Advent, and she says, The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, pain, that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension. With the promise of a future glory that is yet to come in that Advent tension, the church lives its life. Life is full of beauty, 
We see it all around us. Lights, architecture, movies, full of beauty. But also it's full of brokenness. I don't have to tell you how broken our world is. And suffering, the war in Ukraine, the protests that's going on in China, what we've experienced in this city, in Itaewon. Just, can you believe that? That's just a month ago. The tragedy that happened in Itaewon. The list is long. Natural disasters, man-made disasters. And to add to the disappointments we've experienced together as a world, there are disappointments we've experienced in our personal lives. Perhaps 2022 was not a great year for you. Perhaps you had hoped it would have been a better year for your marriage, for your career, financially. I know if you've invested in stocks or anything else, it's been a, it's been a tough year. And, and the common response, whenever tragedies like this happens in our world or tragedies happen in our lives, the common response, or perhaps for many of us, the only response is to try to pick up the pieces and move forward. Or, or try to sweep them under our rugs, the rugs of our lives, and try to move on. Yet after a while, cracks will begin to show. The walls will begin to crumble. But for those of us who are in Christ, as we celebrate Advent, we have a far better remedy than simply ignoring and moving on. Advent invites us to celebrate these two truths. And this is what we are celebrating. Friends, for the next 20-some days, this is what we're celebrating. One, that initial arrival that, that our passage talks about. That God entering humanity, God himself entering humanity to begin the restoring process. And two, another arrival, two arrivals, future arrival was Jesus promised before he went to prepare a place for us. He told us he will return. And once and for all, when he returns, he will do away with all brokenness, pain, and suffering. And this is what Sister Ruddage, the, the quote that we just read, this is what she coined as the Advent tension, living in that reality. And we have been invited to participate in that in this season. So with, with that said, let me do the honor. We, we, we light these candles uh, as we remember the, these wonderful truth, truths about Advent. We, we, we lit the hope candle last week, and Pastor John uh, brought us a wonderful message of hope in the body and the blood of Jesus. Today we light the peace candle, trusting in the promise of Jesus. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 14, we've read it. Uh, just a little bit of background. Luke uh, was a physician. That's what historians say. He, that was his job. He writes this accurate re uh, record of Jesus' life, what we know as the Gospel of Luke. And, and even in our passage in chapter 2, verse 1, beginning verses, he gives an accurate timeline of Jesus' arrival. We're given not some fictional names, but we're given real names, real governor, real Caesar Augustus, guy who actually ruled Rome at the time. And, and notice Luke doesn't begin his account in chapter 2 with some vague description of time. It's, it's not sort of 
the Star Wars-esque beginning once upon a time or far, far long ago. But Luke says, no, it's at that time when Caesar Augustus was ruling Rome, when Governor Quirinius was ruling the city. It was at that time, and it was at that time when the Caesar Augustus decided to make everyone return to their homes to, to do this new census, probably for tax purposes. It's at that season, Luke says, Joseph and Mary had to return from Nazareth to Bethlehem, making that 80-mile trip, trying to nest, trying to figure things out, and they land in Bethlehem. And verse 6 of chapter 2 tells us, while they were there, they were in Bethlehem, because they were living in Nazareth, they were in Bethlehem, the time finally came for Mary to give birth. Friends, it's real time in our history Real city on earth, orchestrated by God himself. It's the fulfillment of many, many promises written in Scripture. Micah 5.2, it says, O Bethlehem, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, the one who is to be the ruler in Israel. That's the fulfillment in a real time, real history, real city. And verses 7 to 8 the same part of, in the same part of the town as the Savior of the world arrived, the same part of the town, that very night there were shepherds. We were told that there were shepherds watching over a flock of sheep. I, I, I love the imagery of shepherds keeping flock at this very moment. And I love how angels have, have chosen them to be the first recipient of this amazing news. And we'll talk about that later but it's almost to signal the arrival of the most wonderful shepherd of them all. That, that the God will orchestrate these things and will send angels to tell shepherds about the true shepherd. And the angel appears to these shepherds and they are terrified. And the angel says, fear not, and I have a great news. And he says, the one that you've been hearing about from the tribe of David, from that line, Christ is finally born in your town, in your time, in the city of David. And, and angels, the angel, the head angel who tells this news says th these two things concerning the coming of Messiah. Verse 14 is, is where we want to highlight when this baby Arrives, or when this baby is here, it is glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We're talking about peace today, peace among those whom he is pleased. You see, the word peace in our passage in Luke chapter 2 is the Greek word irene. Irene is the Greek word. And in Hebrew, it's the word shalom. And you've probably heard of the word shalom. It's greetings even today in, in many parts of the world. But the most common definition of peace, the way we understand peace, is often this idea of absence of conflict or war. We think about war in Ukraine. where We're hoping there will be peace one day. There will be a peace treaty between two countries. 
That's what we think about when we hear the word peace. But when you look at the scripture, it defines this word peace, shalom or irene, not simply as absence of something, absence of conflict, absence of argument, argument, but it's presence of something much more powerful. It speaks of presence of something, the sense of something being whole, something being complete, something that is complex but without lacking and this complex thing working together to make life beautiful and wonderful. That's the idea of biblical peace, irene and shalom. The, the verb, if, if you use the word shalom as a verb, it is to make peace, means to complete something completely new or to restore, to do whatever is necessary to make restitution. Biblically, it talks about making shalom between your neighbors when something, so, so a neighbor's bull comes and, and ruins your field, you have to make restitution, and that's part of restoring, making things right. But again, shalom in a big picture, biblically, is talking about this beautiful, complex structure or community working together so that there is no need, there is no brokenness. One theologian named Cornelius Plantinka, he describes shalom as this, and I, wanna, I think it's, it's a beautiful way to describe shalom. He says, shalom is this, the webbing together of God. Humans and all creation and justice, fulfillment and delight. It's a wonderful picture of the world we all deeply desire. Whether this is the first time at church, whether you've never heard of Jesus. This is human desire beyond Christianity. But embittered, sustained division leads to an unraveling of creation. A fragmentation and disruption so deep that creation groans. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8. How creation groans waiting to be redeemed. And, and Plantinga uh, says, peace is elusive and we are often at war. This is what humans deeply desire, like all of us deeply desire within us. Yet it is so rare. It is not readily available. And when you look at the scripture from Genesis to, to all the Old Testament passages, you see Old Testament is filled with promise of this righteous king, right? A pastor, a friend of mine, described the Old Testament as like a great Korean drama. Great, crazy plot, and, and the whole storyline is pointing to this righteous king. This king's going to show up, and this king is going to make all things right, is going to bring shalom, and, and the whole book of Old Testament is running towards, sort of the plot is running towards this king, and, and like great Korean drama, all these crazy plot, yet it just sort of fizzles out. The king does not arrive, and the story sort of ends, and everyone's, where is this king? In fact, all the kings of Israel, even the few good ones, have failed to bring shalom because that was the primary role of the king. That's the primary role of leadership, to bring shalom to your organization. Whether you're a CEO, whether you're a pastor, whether you are a teacher, to bring shalom. But all the kings, including David, the good one, or sort of good one until the end, failed to bring shalom. Shalom. 
And it's not until Luke chapter 2 that we hear this wonderful news about the king that will finally bring shalom. And Isaiah 9, 6 talks about this prophecy. One of the more famous Advent passages. Isaiah 9, 6 says, so Isaiah is speaking to not people that are doing really well in their life. They're speaking to people that have gone through some hard, difficult, dark things. They're speaking to a group of people that are terrified that this Assyrian army, this scary superpower will about to attack. And Isaiah says, well, 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 wait. If you wait and if you hope in me, this is my promise to you for to us. A child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yet again, majority of Israel's kings utterly fail to make shalom reality. And it's not until we get to the New Testament, opening of new book, Luke chapter 2. The angel looks at these shepherds and tells them, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, the Prince of Peace that was promised long, long ago, 700 some years before. He's finally here, and he's here to restore peace. So three types, now that we've sort of set the, the, the common definition of biblical understanding of shalom, Three types of shalom that Jesus has accomplished for us. I want to talk about three different shaloms that God accomplished for us through Jesus. One, it's peace within ourselves. Two, it's peace with those that are around us. And three, it's peace with Creator God Himself. So first, shalom within ourselves. And, 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 and don't worry, I'm almost, I'm beyond halfway in my sermon. You guys are looking at me like, oh, we're starting now. Was it That's not the intro. We're, we're, we're halfway there. Maybe even more. Shalom within ourselves. It is, it is no exaggeration to say anxiety is a new epidemic. I mean, anxiety is all around us. Some of us have deeply struggled with anxiety. Some of you guys can't even go to a place with large crowd because you get anxious. According to a study conducted by Harvard International article in 2017, this is pre-pandemic. This is about Korea. Nearly one in five individuals in our city suffer from mental disorder. One out of five. In fact, this nation has the highest suicide rate in any OECD nation. We've, we've surpassed Japan. 95% of people living in this city report being stressed. Surprise, surprise. With staggering rates of depression among the elderly. And it's not just young people, right? That's what we think. No, a lot of elderly in this city are struggling with, with anxiety and mental disorder. Yet despite the, despite the national mental health crisis, it is crisis the problem is rarely discussed, and it is often neglected. And again, this study was done 2017, pre-pandemic. Last few years of isolation and battling this COVID-19, the crisis has only gotten worse. Widespread social isolation has caused significant increases in rates of suicide, depression, and loneliness. So even now, as I speak about this topic of peace, 
I think it's important for us to, it's important for me, but for us to acknowledge that the reality is many of us are struggling in this room with anxiety, with depression, with mental health, with thoughts of depression and, and thoughts of suicide. I hope we don't, we, we dress well, we look nice, we smile, we say hello to each other, and it's awkward for those five minutes, but, but, but we got to recognize when we're in, in a room like this, we have people that are actually struggling with these things. Pastors, if you, if you look at the stats of pastors struggling with depression, struggling with mental health, I mean, the numbers are even higher for Pastors. So I hope you realize these feelings that you're, you're dealing with, you may be dealing with, are not uncommon. And it's okay, as cliche as it sounds, it's okay not to be okay. And if you need support in any way from our community, please, let, let's not ignore it. Let's not. I've gotten counseling. It was, it's been wonderful for me. You know, counseling has, been, has done wonders for me. You know, I've had worked things out myself. Counseling is there's nothing to be ashamed. There's something actually we could all benefit. Like we have no problem signing for signing up for a gym, but why do we have a problem seeing if we need help in that way? So I want to encourage you, if you are struggling in any way, seek help. We have counseling ministry out of our church that's available for you. There is the email address. I put it up there. If you need counseling, you, and, and, and we might not be able to help you, but we'll point you to the right direction. So if you need help, please talk to one of the pastors. Talk to us. I can introduce my therapist. It's amazing. All right? I got you. But we, we need it. This is important. Um, and Paul approaches anxiety in, in, in another way. In Philippians chapter 4, is 6, 7. We're going to park ourselves here for a little bit. Paul talks about being anxious. Uh, in this way, and Paul says, as he's writing to a church in Philippi, he says, do not, we do not need to remain anxious or allow, allow ourselves to overcome with anxiety. And he says, because we have access to God through prayer. And he says, when we pray with our needs, when we pray for our needs with thanksgiving, in verse 7, he says, the peace of God, Irene of God, Shalom of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, just as peace is not mere absence of conflict, peace for many of us is not simply absence of anxious feelings, but it is presence of something much more powerful. Verse 7, Paul says, Every time we seek God in thanksgiving, even in our anxious state, Something wonderful begins to happen. When we pray, the irene of God will go to war on our behalf. The word for guard here in our passage, guard, our hearts and mind, is, is this Greek word called phreo, which literally means to guard and protect. This military presence protecting a city, this imagery of a mighty army giving support, giving protection. You see, for the original audience, the Philippians, this was a very relatable illustration because they would go outside and see the great Roman army and their great Roman army hardware. And we'll see that, oh, we're protected by Rome. We're a colony of Rome and we have this protection. 
And Paul says, in the same way, the way we battle our anxiety, the way we battle our fear, one of the ways is that praying, seeking God with thanksgiving. And he says, the gift of peace. What's, what's really interesting is that the gift of peace is irrespective of whether our request has been granted or not. Paul doesn't say when your, answer, when your prayer is answered, thanks, thank, give thanksgiving to God. No, he says, no, when you do this, whether God answers your prayer or not, because we may be praying for a bunch of things that might not be good for us, peace is guaranteed, that peace comes. You pray for a new job, pray for marriage, pray for a new, new season. And God may say, not now, wait. Yet he will give us shalom when we seek him in prayer with thanksgiving. God will continue to give us shalom that will sustain us through even the most difficult season, most uncertain seasons of life. I remember third year of our church plant. You know, I don't talk about it a lot because I'm, I've been traumatized by my third year of church plant. I remember, there's this long story short, there was just a lot of sucky situations, division, people emailing the whole church and just by integrity being questioned, all the other things. I, I literally, you know, 15 years of ministry, that one, that three months, I, all the drama broke, you know, broke my back, all the crazy things. And I remember, man, I remember just praying. I, I remember sitting like, I wasn't even, I was at our old mom, I was sitting in just chair, like I can't even pray, just crying, Lord. But I'm sitting just saying, okay, thank you, Lord. I guess this is also part of, Learning process is also part of what you're doing through our church and what you're processing it. And you know what? A couple years later, I am shocked as much as maybe some of you did. I'm still here, right? There was really real conversation with my wife like, babe, I'm done. I'm done with this pastor thing. This is just way too crazy. And I remember my wife saying, no, tell me you got to stick it out. Let's pray. Let's stick it out. And, I, and, and it's through those seasons when we, even when you can't pray, even when you don't want to pray, even when you have nothing to be thankful, but when you come before him and, 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 and say, Lord, I still thank you for the opportunity that I'm still alive, that I'm still, I still have these things. In verse 7, Paul says, this is the type of peace which surpasses all understanding. This is the type of peace that is far more superior than any type of assurance we could muster up on our own. I remember talking to my therapist. That was when I was talking to my therapist every week. And I, my therapist told me, Sangmin, do not go back to church. Christian therapist. Said, do not go back to your job. You, you should leave. I remember really talking to my therapist. Like, no, I think I'm going to go back. I think it's okay. And my therapist said, Sangmin, if you're going to go back, he gave me a list of things I need to do. But I remember having that peace. Like, no, I'm going to go back. There might be like two people, but I'll go back and we'll see what happens, right? Um, surpasses understanding. It's the type of peace that comforts and sustains a, a parent who's just lost their child. A type of peace that, that comforts a, a mourning widow or widower. 
It's a type of peace that reminds you and I through all that we, although we may feel utterly discouraged and lost in, in times of our lives, God is not. God is not discouraged. God is not lost. It's the type of peace that strengthens and encourages you and I in the face of our darkest battles, trials, and challenges. And it's the type of peace that allows you and I to confess, even though it's hard. Lord, I don't got a clue what's happening, but I trust you. I have no idea what's happening, but I trust you. So friends, this this morning, what is causing you to become anxious? What's keeping you up at night? What fears and anxious thoughts have gotten a hold of your life? Paul says, turn those fears into prayers. Prayers for provision, but also, again, remember, that that picture is really creepy, actually. I'm sorry, I didn't realize how creepy it was. But prayer of also thanksgiving. Notice, and this is is another thing, Paul doesn't say, and I mentioned this earlier, Paul doesn't say give thanks, but God answers your prayers. If if you read that passage, it's not what it says. He says, no, he says, pray with thanksgiving, even when your prayer is not answered yet. Why? Because if God did not withheld his own son, Luke chapter 2, his most precious only son, why would he withhold something else for you that is actually good for you? So you pray with thanksgiving, even before God answers your prayers, that will guard your heart like this mighty army protecting your mind, protecting your heart. Amen? Second piece, I'm I'm sure it's getting shorter, guys. It's getting shorter, I promise. Second piece is this peace with others, people that are around us, people that we work with, people that we live life with. And in Romans, Paul, in his other letter in Romans chapter 12, 18, he says this, If all possible, so, as it, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And Paul says that's one of the major markers of what it means to be a Christian. That whole section in Romans 12 is talking about true marks of a Christian. That's tough. Romans 12 is a tough passage, right? Often my response to Paul in Romans 12, 18 is this, Lord, it's not me. It's the other people. Lord, it's not my driving. It's not my anger. It's that people can't drive in this city. They need to get off the road. Or it's my coworkers. It's not me. I'm a good boss. It's my coworker. It's my employees, it's my boss, it's my parents, it's my children, it's my husband, it's my wife. They're driving me crazy. It's the devil. It's not me. It's them. And and you know what? You might have an unreasonable boss. You might have unmotivated employees, unappreciative children, Those things all may be true. Crazy uncle, crazy uncle. Who doesn't have a crazy uncle? All of us in some ways have crazy uncle. Yet Paul doesn't say in Romans 12, live peaceably with those who are reasonable. He doesn't say live peaceably with people that are good to you, that understand you, that are generous to you. No, he says all people. 
And, 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 and we know Paul, he was not naive about messiness of relationship and life. Even in that letter to Philippians, he knew there was drama in the church. He knew leaders, leaders were disagreeing. He knew people were sinning in their lives. Yet he says, he confidently says, no, with all people, even with your crazy aunt, even with your crazy uncle, even the people you cannot stand As far as it depends on you. So the important question or objection to what Paul is saying is where do we find that type of strength? Like how do we really have that kind of strength to really live peaceably with everybody? Or that type of peace? You see Paul's challenge in Romans 12, which includes the challenge you just gave, live peaceably with all as far as it depends on you. They're not requirements for you and I to become a Christian. Romans 12 is not, hey, you do these things, you're a Christian. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying these things I talk about in Romans 12 in this section, they are not requirements for you and I to become Christian. Instead, they're quality or characteristics of people that are being daily transformed by the gospel. This is very important that we see the difference. Friends, both the peace we want within ourselves and the peace with others. That we, that's the whole section about marks of true Christian. And, and Paul says, this is transforming power of the gospel. But friends, both the peace that we want within ourselves and the peace with others they're only made available through the ultimate peace that Jesus provided for us that night in Luke chapter 2. And this takes us to the most important shalom that we need. The shalom between humanity and God. Shalom between you and God himself. You see, when Adam and Eve in, in Genesis 3 decided to disobey and take matters into their own hands, when they made a conscious decision to pursue happiness outside of their creator God, that very decision that day brought great division between God and humanity. And Paul in Romans 3 says it, he couldn't say it more honestly. He says this in Romans 3, 10 to 11, there is no one righteous because of what Adam and Eve did. There's no one righteous, not even one person. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Colossians 1, 21, we're just in the book of Colossians. Paul says, once you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Sin entered and made us, created this enmity between God and us. And this is why the arrival of Jesus was and is still the most important, most amazing news for all of humanity. You see, Jesus enters the scene. This enmity exists between us and God and Jesus enters the scene. Let's circle back to these shepherds that we talked about in the very beginning. You see, these shepherds that were out on the field that night in Luke chapter 2, the usual version that we've heard growing up in the church is that these shepherds were probably poor and dirty and dishonest. They were outcasts, right? And if you look deeper into the Jewish tradition, it's not hard to see that these shepherds we read about in our passage were actually fulfilling Temple duties. Follow with me. And I land here. This is my last point. According to Mishnah, a governing Jewish document at the time, 
It forbids, the document forbids keeping of flocks throughout the land of Israel except in the wilderness. All the sheep needed to be out in the wilderness, far away from the city. Which means the the flocks that night near the city of Bethlehem, they were special sheep. Specially set aside sheep. Which also means the shepherds that were there in that field that night near the city of Bethlehem, not in wilderness, were actually fulfilling temple duties. Most likely priests. In fact, these sheep, they were watching over. They were the very, they were, they were the very sacrifice. Or they were, they were sheep that were intended to be sacrificed for the Passover that was to come. And it was the priest's job to make sure the lambs were without blemish and completely uninjured until they were put on that altar to be sacrificed. That's to whom those shepherds, those people fulfilling temple duty, that's to whom the angels decide to come and announce this wonderful news about coming Messiah. To the group of shepherds, angel says, I have a greater shepherd, greater sheep. Though the shepherds probably that night were were not completely aware of what was happening, these angels were hand-delivering a message to them, letting them know, though this birth, this birth through the life, through the birth and the life of this baby, there'll be new life. And, And through his death, no other lamb needs to be killed. The true lamb who takes away the sin of the world, according to John, has finally come for us. Friends, this is the gospel. The perfect, sinless God laid down his life for you and I. And our sin has become his shame. Our failure has become his weight. His righteousness has given us right standing before God that we need. And his death has delivered us from our death. And on that cross, as as Son of God hung on that Roman tree, Jesus willingly gave away his shalom so that we can restore, our shalom can be restored. And that's the type of peace Luke and and the angel and, and the season of Advent is proclaiming to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we... Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful work of Luke, the way Luke articulates the story of Jesus' arrival and how everything fits in this wonderful picture. How you sovereignly orchestrate all the details to remind us that there is a remedy for our brokenness. There's a remedy for the brokenness of our world. And it doesn't come from us. It doesn't come within. It comes from you, Jesus. So we just pray in this season of heaven. I pray for everyone in this room and everyone that's watching that we get to slow down and we get to breathe, meditate on all that we have received from you, Jesus. We thank you. We love you. Jesus, we pray.